A Long Way Back to Zion, Book 2, Tyrants and Savages, Chapter 10. There really is nothing out here but grass, and wind, and spirits, and in night, every star the Almighty ever spoke into existence, every one accounted for, as naked and vulnerable in heaven as the pilgrim is on earth crossing the plains. Above and below, neither star nor man has any place to hide. No Man's Land, Oklahoma. I have a chronic case of deja vu, Evelyn sighed. Around the group, in every direction, stretched an endless flat brown sea of dead grass. It wasn't flat like the land they'd been passing through before. It was now completely flat, absolutely, maddeningly level, like an unfinished plane of existence. The only way they knew they were heading in the correct direction was the road. It was long dilapidated and overtaken by grass, but it went on exactly straight, as far as the eye could see and beyond, stretching seemingly to the end of the world. I don't know what a lot of those words meant, Noah replied, but I agree. Looking left and right, he sighed heavily. There just ain't a damn thing out here. I'm bored. He was riding with his right leg slung over his horse's neck and resting on his saddle horn, holding his bow in his left hand and twirling an arrow in his right. Over and over in his fingers, the tip traced circles in the air. His horse huffed lazily, glancing back toward him. We really need to come up with something to pass the time, Jade pointed out. She was just as bored as the rest of the group, perhaps even more so. When she had been at the king's mansion, she'd never been wanting for entertainment. Though she was starting to adjust to a rougher life, she was still missing out on some social interaction. I would say shoot off, but we don't have any ammunition to waste. Sanchez spoke up from the front of the column. He had his six-gun out, and he was twirling it back and forth in his hand. He had his cowboy hat cocked to one side and was trying to ignore the fact that he was starting to get hungry again. They'd eaten that morning, but it was the last of the black-antlered animal they had shot days earlier. His stomach was starting to complain. I think the game should be finding another one of those yellow-colored deer. He scanned around them. That was the best meal I've had since we left the fort. Made a warm coat, too, Jade replied, nodding to Evelyn. Thanks again, Evelyn. No problem, Evelyn smiled. We'll talk Noah and Sanchez into furs yet. I'm fine, Noah lied, pulling his light jacket a little tighter around his shoulders. Huh, <laughs> Sanchez laughed. I'm not. No need pretending you're tough, friend. These jackets are fine for Texas, but it's hot all year round down there. I'm guessing you haven't felt real cold yet, just like I haven't. If you haven't felt it yet, how do you know about it? Noah shot back, still twirling his arrow. I've read about it, Sanchez said shortly, patting his saddlebag where he stored a couple books. We could read a book, Sanchez looked back around. I've been through mine a dozen times, though. Evelyn, you got any books? I do, Noah spoke up. Removing the book from his jacket, he tossed it to Evelyn. She caught it and looked at the cover. Hmm. The Rise of the Global Party for Progress and the Death of American Sovereignty. Evelyn used a dramatic narrative voice to start her narration, then opened the book to a random chapter within and started to read. As we stated in the preceding chapter, the formation of the GNU was made possible completely by the success of the global political movement known obscurely as the Global Party for Progress, or GPP. 
Following the widespread success and popularity of so-called progressive movements in nearly every developed country during the early 21st century, the GPP was able to infiltrate these well-intentioned groups and replace their existing leadership with GPP members. Astonishingly, within a few decades, the GPP had tentacles not only in the politics of every Western country, but also managed to heavily influence popular culture, education, and media outlets on a global scale. Their success can be explained only by accepting that the majority of the population in developed nations during the GPP's rise to power in the 21st century was, for lack of a better term, stupid. I use this simple term to describe them because it is the most accurate. One could argue that it was not entirely their fault. After all, they were so sedated by comfort and plenty that they never dreamed that a group like the GPP, who spoke only of societal progress, world peace, and human coexistence, could turn out to be so corrupt and evil. Another factor historians have pointed out was the global society's amorality and godlessness. This, too, I will not argue, was a contributing factor to their demise. However, even though the GPP controlled almost every facet of the global population's news, entertainment, education, law, and government, I still do not accept this as an excuse for the entire world to have devoured every lie told them by the GPP. The lies were so erroneous, the propaganda so extremely egregious, that the only conclusion I find, no matter which historical or sociological road I travel, is that these people were simply stupid. Sadly, it was this collective stupidity and willful ignorance that led to the rise of the GNU as an unofficial one-world government, and, as a corollary, many of the people who supported the GPP with the most earnest and passion, but were not members of the organization themselves, were the first to die as a result of the GNU's policies. The most notable of these policies was, of course, depopulation. Depopulation, or DEPOP for short, was a policy set forth by the GNU of monitoring and later controlling the global population. It began slowly, with the implementation of one-child policies that much of the world had already heard of or was already living under in their region. However, as the science changed with regard to how many humans the Earth could sustain, the policies changed as well. When the GNU covertly took power and began working their way into every sovereign nation on Earth, the science was clear and certain that 8 billion was too great a number for the fragile Earth to sustain. 5 billion, it was said, was the magical number that Mother Earth could provide for, especially if we humans insisted on burning fossil fuels. 20 years later, we were told that 5 billion was far too great a burden for the world to carry. The science was even clearer now. Any more than 3 billion in our world as we knew it would melt before our eyes. At this point, around 2050, the GNU created an entire department committed to depopulation. Within the following decade, no-child policies and forced abortions were as common as receiving half-rations at one's neighborhood food distribution center. Depop zones were established under the guise of protecting endangered species and the environment and individuals residing in rural areas were forced to move into more populated areas. There were many cells of resistance to this initiative, but they did not fare well against the military power of the GNU. Ironically, the use of nuclear weapons was a common way of dealing with concentrated spots of resistance, but, as one can easily assume, the scientists had not a word to say about these weapons' effects on the environment. 
In fact, any mention of the use of these weapons was dismissed as treasonous propaganda, and anyone who claimed to have seen it with their own eyes seemed to disappear from society very rapidly. Those dissenters who weren't completely annihilated were driven into permanent hiding. Then, just when the global population reached the new accepted cap of three billion, the science changed again. One billion, the GNU proclaimed, was the, all the world could sustain. New scientific studies surfaced daily, lamenting the carelessness of the human race, and applauding the GNU for saving humanity from itself. If only we'd not been so destructive, the scientists cried. We may have avoided all of this. Astonishingly, the people believed what their leaders told them, and they barely resisted the new population initiatives. Whole regions, usually those that were not heavy supporters of the GNU, were starved to death. The GNU was able to explain it away by claiming that the earth was not producing enough food to feed everyone. After centuries of humanity raping Mother Earth, she had finally turned against us. In reality, with all the people pushed closely together into population centers, and no commercial agriculture allowed, there was simply no one farming or ranching. But the people believed what, they're told, what they were told. Their truth was the GNU, and the GNU told them that the truth was the world's revenge. Once again, those few who resisted and tried to sub subsist on their own, they were exterminated. It is commonly known that, when the event occurred that is known to us as the chaos, there were fewer than five billion humans remaining on the planet. What is not commonly known is that on the eve of the chaos, just when the world's population seemed to be on track within 50 years to reach the number the GNU scientists promised would keep the environmental apocalypse at bay, a report was released by the office of GNU President George Ellison. It stated that, to keep humanity from meeting with environmental disaster, the world population would have to be cut by more than half, from 1 billion down to 400,000. President Ellison was rumored to have burned alive outside his mansion the following day when the chaos struck the GNU capital in San Francisco, California. Evelyn finished the chapter she was on and paused. Well, Sanchez turned his head backwards to comment. I didn't think this ride could get any more boring than it already was, but that did it. He laughed. That didn't make much sense to me, he admitted, following up his initial thought. Yeah, Noah agreed. Me neither. He was still twirling the arrow back and forth in his fingers, scanning the horizon from time to time, and hoping to see something besides flat land. It explains the deep hop zone we're in, Evelyn pointed out, trying to explain the basic point the author was making. I found it interesting, Jade called out from the back of the group. I guess it's a good thing they were destroyed during the chaos. No kidding, Evelyn replied. She was deeper into the book now, flipping through pages quickly, but no longer reading aloud. Where did you get this, Noah? I found it, in a cabinet in that tower back on the wall. Noah shrugged. He knocked the arrow back into the bow and yawned. What did the cabinet say? Evelyn threw him a quick grin. She'd been trying to teach him a bit about reading, but he wasn't as eager as she thought he should be. Oh, started with a C, Noah smiled knowingly. He should have known that the question was coming. Oh, contra... something. I don't remember exactly. Contraband, Evelyn said quietly, looking back at the book in her hands. That makes sense. Ah-ha! 
Sanchez's high-pitched holler took everyone by surprise, and Evelyn nearly dropped the book because she was reaching for her pistol. All eyes snapped forward, but only landed on a goofy grin plastered on his face. What the hell? Noah demanded, letting the tension off his bow that he'd half-drawn. I see a mountain, Sanchez shot back proudly. Right there. He pointed way off into the distance to a set of twin buttes. They looked like the tips of rabbit ears poking up over the horizon. That's more of a hill, Evelyn corrected, but it is a nice change of scenery. How is it, Noah? Sanchez called excitedly. The spring before them fed into a small rocky pool that was a few feet deep. The spring was at the foot of the Twin Buttes, and Sanchez still insisted that it was a mountain. It marked the end of the great expanse of flat brown land, and they were all happy to put it behind them. As their horses drank greedily from the creek that ran down from the spring, Noah had been the first one to strip to his shorts and get in the pool. Cold. Really, really cold. Noah's voice was higher pitched than normal, and his teeth were already starting to chatter. But I'm not passing up the opportunity to get clean. Thank God, Evelyn said under her breath. She pulled a crude bar of soap from her pack and threw it at Noah in the pool, then tossed one of the extra blankets on the ground next to him. Underwear, too. Take them off and clean them, or you're not sleeping with me tonight. Noah turned a little red, glancing over towards Jade, who was standing near enough he was not too keen on getting naked. Well, Noah replied, taking the soap in hand. Give me some privacy, at least. Oh, come on. Jade's all the way over there, Evelyn smirked. Besides, you said it was cold anyway. I'm sure you're safe from prying eyes. Ain't nothing we haven't seen before, Noah, Sanchez said, dragging his saddle over toward the pool. He reached into one of the saddlebags and pulled out an extra pair of pants, and then he started stripping off his clothes. Before Noah could even protest, Sanchez was naked and hopping into the pool with a large splash. Evelyn turned away giggling. Are you kidding me? Noah splashed water at Sanchez, dousing his hat. Sanchez threw it right back at Noah, and he winced as the water showered him. What? Sanchez cocked his head and gave him a strange look. Reaching over, he snatched the bar of soap from his hand and started washing himself. There's plenty of room for both of us. Damn it, Sanchez. Your feet are touching my legs. Noah pushed back away from him. Your legs are touching my feet, Sanchez replied nonchalantly, lifting his leg up to scrub it with the soap. Really? Oh, calm down. This water's nearly arctic. Sanchez was rushing through his bath. You weren't going to get Evelyn down here with you anyway. Too cold to do any good, even if you did. Noah snatched the, snow- the soap back away from him with a scowl. You're a weird guy, Sanchez. Me? What about you? Hell, I've known you for what, five years? I don't think I've ever heard you talk to me until that trouble back in Houston. How'd you get along for so many years, living all by yourself, never talking to folks? I'd go plumb crazy if I didn't have anybody to talk to. Yeah, Noah nodded. I guess I was a little strange. Being alone makes you... Yeah, I know. I liked you a lot better than I did before. Huh. Noah grinned. Why didn't you like me before? Well, you never smiled, Sanchez shrugged. You can't trust someone who never smiles or doesn't joke around. He still doesn't know any jokes, Evelyn called over her shoulder, joining the good-natured chaffing. I know a joke, Noah protested defiantly. Huh. This ought to be good, Jade laughed. Hey, I do, Noah promised. Okay, Evelyn called again. Let's hear it. Well, it's it's probably not that funny, 
Noah stammered, realizing he'd just dug himself into a hole. Oh, no, Jay chimed in. Her and Evelyn were appearing now, moving a little closer to the pool. Both Sanchez and Noah covered themselves a little as the girls came closer. You can't back out now. I'm naked in a freezing bath, Noah said, turning red again. All the attention was on him. I'll tell it later. Nope, Evelyn laughed. We'll stand right here till we hear it. Well, Noah looked at Sanchez, Evelyn, and Jade. It's a Mexican joke, okay? A Mexican joke, Sanchez grinned. I bet I've heard it. Will you tell it then? Nope, you started this. Okay, Noah blushed and shrugged. Pointing at Sanchez's saddle, Noah beckoned them to look. On the back of the cantle, Noah nodded to the name Sanchez tooled across it. Why do Mexicans put their name on the back of their saddle? Why? Sanchez was already sniggering. So they don't accidentally steal their own horse. Noah delivered the punchline almost sheepishly. He'd gotten to know Sanchez well over the past few months, but he hoped he would not take the joke hard. Funny, coming from a former thief, Evelyn's look was scolding. Sanchez, on the other hand, burst out into loud, boisterous cackles. Evelyn and Jade moved off to avoid the cold, splashing water. I was wrong, Noah. He could barely get the sentence out, and he had to hold his side. He was laughing so hard. I guess I can trust you after all. He splashed the water at his side and leaned back. Going under the water, Noah could see bubbles coming up, and he could tell that Sanchez was still laughing. Noah looked to Sanchez, who was starting to recover and now scrubbing his head, getting the soap into his hair. I'm glad you took it well. Ha, Sanchez grinned. Well, I'm a bastard. A mutt. I might not be Mexican. I can't get offended if I'm not sure what I am after all. I guess that's true. You want to know something funny, though? Sanchez quirked an eyebrow, nodded toward his saddle. That name on it? It was there when I got the thing. Really? No, I don't believe you. Hand to God. Sanchez started to laugh again, losing his breath at the irony. I stole it. Sanchez coughed and started laughing again. From one of Warren Thatcher's stables. People started calling me Sanchez from there on out. I was always just boy before that. Nice, Noah grinned. Well, we ain't so different after all, huh? Now we're peas in a pod. Sanchez splashed water into Noah's face again. Except you're quite a bit uglier than I am. He stood up and he grabbed his extra pair of pants from the saddle. Ladies, it's your turn. Evelyn took her time and plotted the simplest course she possibly could to the top of the moonlit butte. Not for herself, but because Jade had insisted on joining her. Evelyn had not been blind to the progress Jade had made since leaving the king, but there was still a lot of physical agility she lacked. Jade wasn't old like the king or McTavish had been, but she'd been around quite a bit longer than Evelyn had. Though Jade was still new and inexperienced with physical tasks like climbing or survival in general, the determination in her eyes and face reflected a maturity that they all seemed to lack. After the loss of Jasper, Jade seemed more determined than ever to survive, and Evelyn admired her strength. Evelyn realized how easy it was for her to maneuver up the rocky side of the butte into the bright moonlight, but also how difficult it was for Jade to follow. She saw a bit of herself in Jade. There was that will to continue living such a difficult life after losing everything. That was something that Evelyn understood from first-hand experience. Evelyn, I think this is far enough for me. Jade exhaled breathlessly. 
They had bear-crawled up the easiest angle of the butte into the bright moonlight and only lacked a swift jump up a vertical six-foot rock wall to the summit. You sure? This is the last of it. I can give you a knee up if that helps, Evelyn asked. No thanks. I'd rather not slip in the dark and roll all the way back down. I'll wait here if you want to go on. Jade rolled off her hands and knees and sat down on the ground with her back resting on the vertical rock to catch her breath. I know I said I wanted to get a look at the surroundings, but really I just wanted to see what was up here for fun. Evelyn took a seat beside Jade. Fun? Jade laughed. Evelyn grinned at Jade, but Jade had her eyes closed, still catching her breath. Fifty feet below them, Evelyn could make out the flickering glow of their campfire, reflected off the few trees by the spring. She couldn't see the boys, but it was clear from Sanchez's boisterous voice and the laughter that echoed up the cliff that he had not yet run out of jokes to tell. Evelyn took a deep breath of the still, chilly air as she looked outward at the moonlit earth. The small, wavy hills the butte was nestled in glowed where the light touched their tips and descended into shadows at the edges like ripples in a pond. Waves of hills extended for a few miles, growing smaller further from the butte into the calm black sea of land in the far horizon. Oh my god, Jade squealed. Her calm breathing sprang back into panicked life, and her hand shot to the ground at her sides. She dug her feet into the slanted rock side she had just climbed up, sending a few loose pieces rolling down the side. What is it? Evelyn jerked around, and her hand went to her side. We're really high up, Evelyn, Jade whispered shakily. Evelyn laughed and eased back down. Jade's eyes were wide with fear as she took in the distance and the angle at which they'd climbed. I didn't realize how far we'd came. Why did I do this? This is so steep. How are we going to get back down? It'll be fine. I promise I'll get you back down, Evelyn giggled. The hard part's over. Getting down is a breeze, I swear. Evelyn, you okay? What happened? Noah called from the darkness below. We're fine. Jade just realized she's scared of heights. Evelyn hollered back down to Noah, even though she could already hear him beginning to climb up. Sorry, I've just never been up so high before. It's okay. Try not to look down. They say that helps. Evelyn hooked her arm around Jade's for comfort, and Jade's wide eyes moved off to the rock slide. Wow, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Did that help? No, it kind of makes me dizzy. I think I'll just keep my eyes shut. Sounds like Noah's on his way up. They sat in silence for a moment, listening to Noah scramble down below while Jade's breathing grew calmer. You're very lucky, you know. Jade spoke with closed eyes. What you have with Noah, I mean. That's, that's rare, Evelyn. Especially these days. Yeah, Evelyn replied. I didn't expect it. It just sort of happened. Uh, fell into place, I'd say. Jade turned and gave her a pained smile. Don't take one second of it for granted. Evelyn nodded. I try not to. She paused to reflect on the advice, and then asked, What about you and Sanchez? He follows you around like a lost puppy. Jade smirked. That's how I see him, like a lost puppy. Sanchez is smitten with me, I can tell. Too much so. That's why I came up with here with you instead of listening to his jokes. He's so kind, but he's so young, you know? I'm not complaining. I've kept worse company. Evelyn nodded. She didn't know much about Jade's past before Austin, but judging by her tone, she guessed it wasn't overly noble. 
They each sat in reflection for a moment, taking in the starry scenery and listening to Noah's huffing as he climbed closer. I don't miss my life with him, the king, I mean, but I miss Jasper every day, Jade said, brushing the dirt off her palms. I'm glad to be here, even though some days it seems like the only place I belong is in the earth next to her. I'm glad you're here too, Jade. I'll be honest, I never expected to come across good people when I got off the boat. Hope not to run into any people, actually, let alone good friends. And I'm glad I'm here too. After a few more moments, Noah appeared. Y'all right? We're fine, Ethel looked down to Noah. I brought my rope in case you needed it. Yeah, I'll need it to get off this damn mountain, Jade thanked him. I didn't realize how tall it was when I started. Evan laughed. I'm telling you guys, this isn't a mountain. If you don't like this, you're really not going to like the mountains. Noah tied one end of the rope around himself and then the other around Jade. He hopped over the top of the rock wall to get better footing, and Jade started down. Evelyn followed him up. On top of the truncated cliff, the butte looked like a small island in the sky. Noah was lying on his back in the middle of the circle, the rope still around his waist and his head resting in his arms. She's doing all right getting down, I guess. Yeah, I think she's embarrassed. Evelyn settled with her back next to him, resting her head on his arm. You smell so much better. The moon looks so close I could touch it. And all those stars, too. She reached her hand skyward. The night sky always makes me feel so small. Floating above them was an intense full moon. Evelyn felt as though they'd climbed into its nest, and now it was back, asking them what they thought they were doing there. Surrounding it, countless twinkling stars stretched into forever. Noah laughed. You're easily impressed. What are you talking about? Evelyn asked. You smelled like a dead animal. Well, that too, but I'm at the sky. He adjusted his arm she lay on from behind his head to around her shoulders so he could hold her. What's that supposed to mean? Oh, it's just the sky. It always looks like that. Why would it make you feel small? What's so special about that black with dots? Evelyn looked at him quizzically. Wait a minute. Black with dots? Do you know what those are? Stars and the moon? That's what they're called, but do you know what they are? I just told you. Stars. The moon. Noah... The moon is a giant rock that spins in a big circle around the Earth in space. It's kind of like a small planet. Those tiny dots are planets and suns that are really far away. Suns are enormous balls of gas. Everything you see in the sky is in outer space. Except for clouds. Noah snorted a laugh. Evelyn sat up and looked at him, almost offended. He realized she wasn't smiling and he sat up too. You're kidding, right? That sounds ridiculous. I'm not kidding, it's the truth. See, this is why I'm trying to teach you to read. You need to learn a thing or two. Ball of gas, the moon a giant rock. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It wouldn't hang in the air if it was a rock. Noah laughed and settled onto his back again. You're the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Noah. You're going to start reading. Evelyn rolled her eyes and snuggled back into his warm side while he still laughed. She wasn't taking a single second for granted. Chapter 11 
It's not the things that you hear in the jungle that you should fear. It's the things that you don't hear that will kill you. Amazon Rainforest, Brazil The steady buzz of the minigun sounded much different than any other weapon that Walt had ever had the privilege of operating. Strangely, that was the thought that bubbled up in his mind the moment he started firing the gun. Rather than wonder why there were people firing on them from the rooftops as they crossed the bridge, or who those people may be, or even if the bullet that had tagged his chest had made its way through his body armor, Walt's mind immediately focused on the sound of the gun. He'd always been like this. For as long as he could remember, Walt had always been different than others. He thought and acted and looked thoroughly different than anyone else, and he knew it. Even his name was different than other people's. When Roland found him in the Canadian wilderness, Walt had only known two words, his first name and the name of the trees that his house was built from. His parents had gone on a hunt one day and never returned, orphaning Walt at the age of eight. Ten years with no one to talk to had left him mute until the ravens had stumbled upon his cabin. His years of solitude had done more than impede his speech, though. Walt was a wild animal when the ravens found him, and his psyche was forever scarred. He was extremely gifted and clever, however, and Roland had spotted it right off. It had taken Roland years to instill a sense of humanity in him, and finding emotion and empathy under Walt's endless layers of primal instinct was not easy. In times like these, though, Walt's mind snapped back to a very familiar place. It was fight or die, kill or be killed. Walt had only one speed when the shit hit the fan. He was all fight and no flight. One o'clock, Roland bellowed from the front. Walt shifted the gun, but was hit again in the chest as he turned, not three inches from where the first round had impacted. He felt as if someone had planted a sledgehammer into his chest, and he was surprised he was still conscious, but he directed his fire as best he could to the rooftop. The corner exploded into puffs of white dust and concrete, disappeared, then there was a definite puff of red mist as one of the assailants caught a bullet. I thought you said there would be no resistance. Mark yelled over to Roland, who was stomped on the gas and accelerated the wagon forward. He swung his saw across the open front of the wagon and unleashed a few controlled bursts. I said 90% death rate, not 100. Roland glanced backward to make sure Adam was not hit. Then he looked forward and focused entirely on the road. The road was unblocked, luckily, and the group crossed the bridge and screamed down the road. The punishing fire from the minigun evaporated the corner of the building, they were, and there were no more shots from the roof as the three wagons sped past the ambush and into the city street beyond. You good, Walt? Mark asked, not looking up from the sights of his saw. Stand by. Walt released the minigun, and he thrust his hand inside his plate carrier. Withdrawing it, he felt no blood, and he let out a sigh of relief. All good. It didn't go through. Walt scanned the street back and forth for any threats, and he glanced down to Adam, hunkered at his feet. Stay down there, buddy. We're not out of the woods yet. He was right. As they passed into the city, they noticed quickly that most of the roads were blocked off to the right and to the left. Huge barricades made from ancient, useless vehicles and other garbage spanned the length of every side street and forced the ravens to travel straight down the main road. It was likely a very heavily populated area before the sickness reached it, and Roland imagined it as some sort of checkpoint that followed the bridge they had come across. The people who lived here may have protected the north side from the river, 
or collected a toll from travelers, or simply robbed and killed anyone who came across the bridge. The answer was not knowable, but it mattered little at this point. The ravens had been engaged, and that meant they would be forced to return fire. The side streets and the buildings that they passed looked much different than anything they were used to. While nature reclaimed abandoned cities everywhere else, here it consumed them. It became them. The thick jungle climbed into every corner of the city, every building, and grew in and around them, causing the buildings to look like strange masses of vegetation. Vines, brush, and trees had climbed up and turned the gray city to green. At this point, the place was simply a part of the forest, and the trees and vines connected from building to building and reached out as far as they could over the road. The road itself was only recognizable because the weeds and plants grew shorter through the forgotten asphalt beneath. For a few moments, the group was completely shielded from the sky and sun, driving underneath the canopy of the forest. Everyone still stood on full alert, but other than the humming of the engines, there was no movement or sound from the overgrown city around them. As the canopy broke, however, and they came into a more open area, the radio lit up again. I have movement. Luke's voice squawked over the radio. Right side, two-story building. He's got a rifle. To the right, Walt saw the man for a quick moment. He looked just as Walt would have guessed a forest-dwelling primitive would look with dirty, tattered clothing that hung loosely off a malnourished frame. His eyes were flashing with anger, and he brought his rifle to his shoulder. Walt thought, for a moment, that this man was quite possibly the exact person he would have been if the ravens had not found him, dressed in tatters and trying to survive in a forest. Then he depressed the trigger on the minigun, and the man's lower half evaporated. "'Why are they shooting at us?' Walt yelled." Roland weaved this way and that around the large clumps of growth in the road. The obstacles were barely noticeable as cars anymore, and looked more like strangely shaped shrubs or bushes. I expect it's because we're driving G&U vehicles. Roland jerked the wheel. Two people emerged from behind a car-shaped bush to the left, but quickly ducked back after a burst from the minigun. We're close enough to the base, that makes sense. One of the men had been holding an assault rifle, most likely stolen from a GNU soldier at some point in the past. I don't like shooting at civilians, sir, Mark rasped. They shot past where the men had been hiding, but they dove back inside the building as they passed, and Mark held his fire. Me either, but it's not like we can stop and tell them we aren't the bad guys. Roland turned left, forced by a roadblock onto the main road. As they rounded the corner, the buildings on either side began to get taller and taller, carrying the jungle up with them. Six, ten, even fifteen-story buildings surrounded them now as they passed into what must have been the downtown area of the city at one point. The vines crept up the sides of even the tallest buildings, and frightened birds flurried back and forth between the massive structures. Roland pulled his eyes away from the amazing sight and looked forward. About seventy-five yards ahead of him, the road was blocked off from every side. They're boxing us in, he warned over the radio, and his eyes darted back and forth for a weak point in the barricades. There were flashes of gunfire from a couple of the rooftops and the high windows, and the miniguns and saws answered in kind. They sent bullets anywhere they saw flashes or movement, but it was quickly apparent that the attackers had the upper hand. If they got the convoy to stop at the roadblock, they would be able to fire down on them from all sides from their vine-covered towering buildings. Even with all the weapons and the armor, they would be like sitting ducks for fire from above. With Adam in the back of the wagon, 
Roland was not taking the chance of stopping and fighting it out, and his eyes set on the roadblock directly in front of them. Carson! Roland nearly screamed over the radio. I'm on it, sir. From the wagon directly behind them, Carson guessed the commander's intent and rose up in his seat, aiming his grenade launcher over the lead wagon and toward the roadblock. He steadied his aim on the roll bar and pulled the trigger twice. The two projectiles hit the roadblock half a second apart and exploded, blowing it apart and sending metal, wood, and dense green brush flying in every direction. Roland stomped on the accelerator and broke through the weakened barrier with a crash. The other two wagons followed his path and disappeared through the gaping hole left by their grenades, leaving the tall, vine-covered buildings behind them. As the sun began to go down on the dense jungle within the city, a young girl descended off one of the buildings timidly. Ivana was leaving the safety of her tall home above the jungle floor, and her survival instinct was screaming at her to turn back. Night was a very dangerous time on the jungle floor, and her father's rules prohibited her from being anywhere but the safety of their home at night. She stepped quietly down a few flights of stairs until she reached the point where the stairwell was blocked. From there, she made her way to the opposite side of the building, ducking through the growth and following the pathway to the bottom. It was important that the pathway was hidden. Like everyone else's home inside the jungle city, her own had to be difficult to find or reach. Not only were there unfriendly tribes that sometimes ventured into this part of the city, but there are also animals to defend against. The jaguars hunt at night. Her father's warning burned into her mind as she navigated through the maze of the building, making her way toward the bottom. This close to the ground level, jaguars could reach her. There were enough tall trees growing around and through the massive skyscraper that the big cats could make their way inside to hunt. Beyond the jaguars, there were other dangers as well. Non-native chimpanzees and gorillas roamed Ivana's part of the Amazon, and they could be just as deadly as the jaguars. The native howler monkeys were harmless, but their calls echoed through the forest and it always sent a chill up the young girl's spine. As Ivana reached the floor of the forest and looked down into her father's cold gray face and lifeless eyes, all of those threats were forgotten. They had been through so much, survived for so long, and now he was dead. The manhunters had finally killed him, even though he had sworn to her they never would. The manhunters had come many times before, always trying to find people to kidnap from the jungle, and finally the tribes in the forest had agreed to fight them off. Before that, it was always run and hide, taking refuge in the forest and in the towers. But after they brought the sickness and killed most of the people, the remaining few vowed to fight them. They had not seen any for many months, before today. But when the alarm went up, her father grabbed his gun and went to fight with the rest of them. Now, as Ivana sat helplessly beside her father, she wept angrily at him. He was all she had left. Her mother had died from the sickness, her two sisters had died also, but she and her father had survived it. But now, jaguars hunt at night. Ivana's mind warned her again when she saw, heard a faraway noise. It wasn't yet fully dark, but it was only a matter of minutes. In the shadow of the building, she was already beginning to have trouble seeing her father's face. She could not make herself move, though. She could not make herself care to. What was the point of trying now? She could not survive without her father. She was no good at hunting, and she couldn't even draw her father's bow to try. 
She knew no one else in the city. Now that the threat had passed, all the men who weren't dead were off on their own again, hiding somewhere in the city, and they would not dare come near anyone else for fear of the manhunter's sickness. At night, they would not leave their hidden homes for any reason. They could not see in the dark like the jaguars or, worse yet, the manhunters. And it was night now. The dark grew thick around Ivana and seemed to envelop her completely. But she did not move from the spot beside her father's body. She'd made up her mind. Ivana would stay here and wait for the jaguar to take her away. Even when she heard the unmistakable hum of more manhunters, she didn't move. She turned toward the road and accepted her fate. The sound grew louder and louder, until finally it was so near Ivana could see where it was coming from. Through the dark, all she could see were the bright green night eyes of the manhunters. There were many of them, at least a dozen, and they moved quickly toward her through the dark and then stopped abruptly. The eyes all turned her way, and then they started moving toward her. They were walking now, not riding, and Ivana's heart began to pound rapidly. She could hear the voices, but they spoke a strange language she did not understand. Grayson, one of them said. It's just a girl. She's unarmed. The green eyes came close to her, and the manhunter crouched in front of her. Immediately, Ivana wished he was a jaguar instead. You speak English? Which way did these men go? He pointed at her dead father, and then he looked back to her. Ivana did not understand anything but the fear in her heart. Their tracks lead this way. Another one of the manhunters came over, too, standing near the first. Let's go. She doesn't know anything. Smith's right. The crouching manhunter stood up, and he took a couple steps back. We aren't too far behind. The body hadn't been dead for more than a few hours. We'll just hold on now, Beckett. Two more of the manhunters walked up and neared Ivana. We don't have all the intel from this girl yet. Maybe Vic and I should take her inside and make sure she doesn't speak English. There was a weird chuckle from one of the sets of green eyes, and it gave Ivana a feeling that climbed up her back like a spider. We don't have time for you to try out the local flavor, Raymond. One of the manhunters stepped in front of the other. We need to get after the objective. You giving orders now, Beckett? One man pushed the other, and immediately the green eyes all turned toward each other and away from Ivana. We're on a damn suicide mission, Beckett. Another voice called from the other side. Excuse me if I want to have a little fun before I die. She's barely ten years old, Vic. Is that why you're here, huh? Messing around with the blue covers, little girls while they're out working? Or was it little boys? The one voice who had challenged the first man now challenged another. You think you scare me, Beckett, the voice replied angrily. Move aside, Beckett. Me and Vic are having our fun, whether we have to go through you or not. Two sets of green eyes began to advance, and the man in front of them stepped forward to block them. Then Ivana saw another set of green eyes, walking toward her from the side. This manhunter was alone and going unnoticed by the rest of the men behind. He stopped a foot away from Ivana, and he extended out his hand. Ivana could not see what he was doing. The green glow of his night eyes drew her attention like an insect to a light. Ivana felt something cold press against her forehead. There was a white flash in the report of a gun. There, problem solved. Get in the transports, we're moving out, Grayson said, walking through the middle of his men and back toward the llamas behind them. He pushed aside Vic and Raymond roughly as he passed through. 
You heard the lieutenant, Beckett added, looking at the two through his night vision goggles and pointing toward the vehicles. The two men looked at him mutinously before turning and heading back the way they'd come. Beckett looked over to where the young girl was sitting. Blood seeped slowly from a small hole in her forehead. He looked back toward the llamas and shook his head in disbelief as he walked back to take his seat next to Grayson. Chapter 12 The real man smiles in trouble, gathers strength from distress, and grows brave by reflection. Thomas Paine Fort Amarillo, Texas McTavish leaned forward and he placed five rounds of three fifty seven on the table, one after the other. The last cartridge came down with a soft click. He never spoke much during the town meetings that Fort Amarillo held. He felt it was not his place, as he still considered himself somewhat of a newcomer. Today, however, he decided to speak. It was a situation that he could shed some light on, perhaps. They were gathered in the tavern on the bottom floor, sitting at a long wooden table in the center of the room. Besides McTavish, Garrett, and Eli, there were another fifteen men and seven women at the table. They were the heads of all the families that inhabited the fort, and when there was a crisis, they met. The current crisis and ammunition shortage was a serious one, especially after the revelation that Eli had brought back to the fort. I've got five, McTavish's voice dripped with worry. The Yanos hit us again like they did last week. We won't be able to push them back. The wall will hold them off. Garrett waved his hand, trying to convince himself with his own words. I wouldn't get too complacent, McTavish warned. That's what killed the King of Austin. Did he have a wall? Garrett's voice held a hint of annoyance. We've held the wall for a long time now. The Yanos only come in parties of ten, twenty tops, and we've held off five hundred of those plague victims for a month and a half. They were weak, Eli nodded to Garrett. The Yanos aren't. He'd not been able to shake the feeling of foreboding since he'd made it back to the fort from his scouting mission. He was the only one who'd seen it, and he couldn't even put words to the disquieting feeling the little Yano ceremony had given him. I'm telling you, there were hundreds of them. Something is it's different about them. I'd sure like to know what. Julia Cruz, one of the women a few places down from McTavish, spoke up. The Yanos just start coming from all over, all of a sudden, concentrating here. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We can't afford to send out any more expeditions or investigations. Garrett shook his head and glanced harshly at Eli. He'd been angry at him ever since Eli had gone off by himself. Chances are, they wouldn't make it back alive. Uh, even if we had enough weapons and ammo to give them, it'd be too dangerous at this point. McTavish agreed with Garrett immediately. Hey, I'm with you. Believe me. Eli held up his hands, placating the group. We need to focus on improving our defenses here. I agree, McTavish nodded. But we can't rely solely on our guns anymore. Tavish motioned toward the five bullets on the table. What else do we have? How many bows can we get our hands on? Huh. We're going to fight like the Yanos now? One of the younger men, sitting behind Garrett, scoffed at McTavish's suggestion. Uh, works for them, don't it? Garrett turned his head toward him and gave him a hard look. 
We got 20 or so around the shops and what Noah and them left. They left a bunch of arrows, didn't they? Yep, McTavish nodded. So, who knows how to shoot a bow? Garrett looked to his left and right. After a moment of silence, only one hand went up. Ah, at least I used to. McTavish shrugged and lowered his hand. I can show you all the basics. Following his sentence, there was a loud knock on the door, and a young man crossed the floor quickly, coming to the table before speaking. Uh, there's a guy at the gate, he said, nervous-like. McTavish had met the boy a few times, and he knew his name was Jacob. He was about 16, but that was all McTavish knew about him. He came from the Northwest. He's got, he's got two little girls with him. Calm down, Jacob. Do they have the sickness? Garrett was tired. He was tired of turning people away. Every time he did, it tore his heart in half, and it never got any easier. Well, that's just the thing, Garrett. They don't, they don't have it. The guy's all kinds of crazy, though. Says he had the Red Plague, and his girls, too. He says a golden-haired angel named Evelyn gave him water, and the plague went away. Jacob looked from McTavish, and then back to Garrett. I think we should go see what this guy has to say. McTavish's eyes widened, and he looked over to Garrett and Eli. He gathered up the five bullets in front of him and fed them back into the cylinder of his revolver, snapping it closed on the open chamber. The three of them rushed toward the gate with Jacob leading the way, and they sprinted up to the top of the tower. Below them was the man, fidgeting nervously and holding his girls close as he shifted from side to side. He kept his head on a swivel, fearful of the open dark plains around him and the nightmares they held. When he saw the figures above lean over the wall, he looked up with pleading eyes. Please, please let us in. A pale white beam of light illuminated him and his daughters, but he tried his best to keep his voice down, as if he was expecting something or someone to spring from the darkness around him and set upon him and his family. Show us your arms, your necks, your bodies, Garrett commanded, leaning out a little further and looking down. The man and his daughters complied with the order and showed themselves. A few specks remained, scars of boils and sores that had healed completely. From the wall, Garrett saw only healthy people before him. Why did you tell my guard you had the sickness? I, we, we did, all of us. The man hurried to put his jacket back on. But it, it went away. The angel gave us the water and it took the red plague away. See? Guy's crazy, Jacob whispered toward Garrett and McTavish, who were still looking down toward the man with uncertainty in their eyes. They could plainly tell that the three were not infected, but with the man claiming they had been, Garrett was in no rush to open the gate. Jacob continued to whisper. He kept saying that over and over and over earlier. He's crazy. Stay right there for a moment, sir. Garrett spoke loudly down toward the man, and then he turned to McTavish. You ever see anyone recover from the sickness? No, McTavish shrugged, and Evelyn was pretty certain that there was no remedy. This guy isn't making any sense, but then again, how many blonde-haired angels named Evelyn could there be on the road between here and wherever this guy came from? If they told him where the fort was, they must have figured they weren't a threat. It's possible that this red plague isn't the same thing as the sickness we know. Garrett took off his hat and he rubbed his head. You said he came from the west, Jacob. The sickness we know of is in the east, not the west. Well, it's pretty clear he doesn't have it. 
we can't leave those little girls out there to starve and die if they don't have the sickness. Eli said what both Garrett and McTavish were thinking. But what if we're wrong? What if he actually does have it and we just can't see it? McTavish broke the short silence. Now, I don't want to see two little girls die either, but there are ten girls just like him inside the fort. We'd be putting them in danger if we're wrong, not to mention the rest of the people here. Well, Garrett was about to answer McTavish's worries when there was a scream from the other side of the wall. Out of reflex, Garrett, McTavish, Eli, and Jacob all pulled their guns and turned back to the darkness beyond the wall. The beam of the flashlight stabbed through the darkness to where the man and his girls had been standing, and what it shone on made the blood flee from McTavish's face as if it could escape what his eyes were seeing. A dark figure was behind the man, and its spider-like arms wrapped like a knot around his throat. Beyond the long black arms, McTavish could see the wide, white, soulless eyes and the white vertical lines that ran from one edge of his mouth down to the other. It seemed to look directly at McTavish. The eyes were vacant, showing no joy in the act it was performing, nor malice, nor hate. Instead, they were primal and savage, like a predator holding down its kill. Its eyes said what its wordless mouth would not. This is mine. My kill. My prize. On the other side of the men, there were more of them. The old raggedy donkey that the man had been leading was peppered with arrows and spears, and though it was not fully dead yet, the savages were dragging it off at a frightening pace. It was illuminated for only a moment before it disappeared into the murky darkness out of view. To the left and the right of the man, his daughters were still alive. Dirty hands clung to their long, messy hair and began to drag them away from the wall. McTavish and Garrett both brought their guns up in an instant. Garrett's rifle barked, and the round snapped the head of the night watcher dragging the younger girl behind him. His grip faltered, and the girl got to her feet quickly. McTavish took careful aim with his revolver and fired just after Garrett, hitting the other girl's captor in the shoulder. It didn't kill the savage, but his grip released as well, and the girl rushed with her sister toward the light in the wall. McTavish fired a second time, and the night watcher caught the bullet full in the chest and fell backward. Even in death, the night watchers didn't cry out or yell in pain. Garrett held the flashlight against his lever-action rifle and worked the action, scanning back and forth for more threats. Another savage burst from the dark toward the girls, but the rifle fired again and he crumpled to the ground. Eli! Garrett yelled, wondering why his friend wasn't firing. McTavish glanced to his side and noticed that the man wasn't there. Below them, the, great cl- the gate creaked loudly. Two more night watchers emerged, sprinting for the girls with strange loping gates. McTavish's revolver erupted thrice more, and both of the fiends fell short of the girls by only a few steps. Then Eli emerged into the circle of light. He plucked the girls from the ground, one under each arm, and made for the open gate. It was only a few strides, but there were more savages close behind them. Garrett fired quickly, pumping round after round into them. Two of them fell. Eli reached the gate and rushed inside. His hands were still full with the girls, and he stumbled forward away from the gate a few steps before stopping. Then he turned. He saw the pale white eyes and the long grasping arms. They were coming through the open gate. His pistol was at his side, but one of the girls was held tight against it, and he'd never reach it in time. The light illuminated the scrambling savage, and the hammer on Garrett's rifle fell. 
There was no round for it to ignite. He was empty. McTavish rushed for the corner of the wall. He could see the night watcher advancing on Eli and the girls only a few yards away, and he raised a long, ugly knife as he charged them. Without time to think, McTavish just reacted, diving off the wall. The night watcher was only three yards away from Eli now, and the knife came up. All he could do was shield the two young girls and close his eyes. The long, stainless steel barrel of McTavish's three fifty-seven was the first thing that hit the night watcher. It came down on its skull with a wet smack, and the full weight of McTavish's body followed. He hit the savage so hard that he felt as if the world would give way beneath them and he would press them completely into the earth. When the two connected fully with the ground, McTavish's world flashed red and his eyes started to ring. He gasped for breath, but found nothing there. He tried again and again, but it seemed that his gulps for air caught in his throat and he could get no air into his lungs. McTavish rolled off the night watcher and clutched at his chest, gasping unsuccessfully for air. Garrett slammed the gate, closed, and locked it. There were men and women rushing all around now with lanterns and flashlights. They scurried to the walls with guns at the ready, and the circle around McTavish and the dead night watcher grew. Garrett shouted orders to the wall, but there was no gunfire. The night watchers had disappeared back into the darkness. McTavish! Garrett yelled. He rushed forward a few steps, but when his eyes set on the dead night watcher, he stopped immediately short of the scene. Everyone stay back. Garrett yelled to the circle of the lights that were gathering around the grisly, blood-spattered piece of earth. If you aren't on the wall, I want you to go back to your homes and stay inside. Go now. Ah. Ah. McTavish got to his knees and he tried to speak, but his lungs were still devoid of the air to do so. He leaned up into a kneeling position and he continued to gasp. His eyes glanced to the dead savage. There was something there, something very important, but his, uh, his mind would not let him focus on whatever it was. Jacob. Garrett glanced to the young man. He'd run to Eli and the girls. Eli still clutched the girls at his side. Back away, but don't go near anyone. Eli, you keep those girls with you. Be calm, girls. Everything's going to be okay. McTavish could hear Garrett talking, but he sounded far away. His ears were still ringing. I'll get some wood and oil. Another voice in the group sounded as far away as Garrett's. It was full of sorrow. What's wrong with him? McTavish's foggy mind was beginning to come around. He could see that Jacob, Eli, and the girls were safe. The savage was dead. All should have been well. Go now. Sooner the better. Get on it. Garrett spoke again. McTavish, you all right? Are you hurt? Hell yes, I'm hurt. I just jumped off the damn wall. McTavish's foggy brain was furious with the question. Why was no one helping him? Finally, after a few more gasps, McTavish found his breath. I'm all right, he said through grit teeth. I don't think I broke anything. McTavish's eyes found the dead night watcher again, and finally his mind understood what was happening. Though the dead man's skin was dark, McTavish could see it as plainly as if it were daylight. All along the night watcher's exposed body, the red angry boils of the sickness were staring at him mockingly. He had it. The dead night watcher had the plague. And if the savage had it... 
McTavish looked down at the revolver in his hand. It was coated in thick, dark blood and gore. All over his chest and arms, McTavish had spatters of blood. He tasted a salty copper tinge in his mouth. It was certainly possible it was his own blood, but when he wiped his cheek with the back of his wrist, he noticed his face was spattered with blood as well. Then McTavish felt the biting in his side. It was a very shallow, superficial puncture wound. Looking back toward the night watcher, McTavish saw that the savage had fallen on his own blade and ran himself through the chest. The blade protruded out his back less than an inch, but it had been enough to poke a small hole in McTavish's side. McTavish rolled onto his backside and leaned his arms up onto his knees. He swore an oath quietly to himself before looking up to Garrett and shaking his head. I think I would have preferred... He masked his fear with a smile, and he tried to swallow down the lump in his throat. He couldn't keep his eyes from welling up, but he laughed it off. I think I'd rather have died from the fall. Each day passed more slowly than the one before, as McTavish sat in the little shack off to the corner of the fort. Most days he spent drinking and thinking, alone in the corner of the shack. There was a table and a chair toward the center of the room, but McTavish preferred sitting on his bedroll with his back against the wall. It had been four days now since the night watchers had attacked, and still he showed no signs or symptoms of the plague. McTavish did not allow himself to hope, however, not this soon. He had reserved himself to death, but he was not facing it with as much courage as he hoped he would. He was afraid. Though he had thought it a natural emotion to have, he'd always hoped that he would face death more bravely than others had. As he finished off the bottle of strong alcohol in his hand, though, McTavish could feel his courage and bravery receding and the fear rising up in his throat. He did not want to die. He especially did not want to die of the sickness, not after what he had seen of it. Mr. McTavish? A voice from outside the shack roused him from his solitude and he perked up. "'Miss Cruz,' McTavish replied. Standing up and crossing the room a little way, he spoke affably. "'How's everything? How's Jacob, Eli, the girls?' "'They're all right,' Julia replied. "'Everyone's all right.' She paused for a moment before asking the next question. She wasn't sure she wanted to hear the answer. "'Are you all right? Are you showing any signs?' "'No, not yet.' McTavish's voice dropped a little. It was impossible to hide the fear in it, but he tried at least. He did not want Julia worrying for him. He could see her shadow outside the door, and he could picture her pretty face. Of course, he hadn't told her how pretty he thought she was, and he always referred to her as Miss Cruz out of politeness. She was almost twenty years his junior, but it didn't stop her from flirting with him from time to time. He'd not flirted back. Now, however, with his death probable... He toyed with the idea of letting her know he thought she was beautiful. No, what good would that do her if he died? Breaking a widow's heart was the last thing he wanted to do. Any more signs of the night watchers? he asked finally. Well, Julia sounded anxious even before she began. They haven't been near the walls again, but we saw some of them standing off in the distance to the east this morning, and we saw Yano's to the west the day before that. Night watchers out during the day? That's strange. Well, Garrett said he saw them. They were a long way off, but through the scope, Garrett said they were dark-skinned, t- 
too dark to be Yano's. Uh, they have dogs with them. McTavish's voice was defeated. How'd you know? Julia got a little closer to the door of the shack. Uh, they're called trackers. They're a different tribe than the Night Watchers, but I've seen them work together before. Tavish sat down at the table, and he pulled the cork off of another bottle of homemade whiskey. Have our riders seen any signs of the Yanos fighting them off? I haven't heard it, but I expect not, or it would have been big news. Julia knelt down and pushed a small folded piece of hide under the door. Here, you should have these, just in case things go south and they get into the fort. She stepped back away from the door, and McTavish crossed over and picked up the package. It held six rounds of thirty-eight special ammunition. Nothing special, just wad cutters, but it was better than nothing. The two stood for a moment, separated only by the door, and did not speak. Finally, Julia's name was called from somewhere far off. Oh, thank you, Miss Cruz. McTavish called from inside the shack. He pulled out the cartridges, sat back down, and loaded his revolver. I'll let you call me Julia if you tell me your first name, Julia replied, trying to force a tone of cheer into her voice. McTavish could see her, still standing outside the door, waiting. Uh, it's Sandy, McTavish called after a short pause. Sandy McTavish. Sandy, Julia chuckled under her breath. It's awful, right? McTavish laughed looking toward the door and imagining Julia's cute, dimpled smile. I like it, she said resolutely through the door. I'm going to call you Sandy from now on. Please don't, McTavish pleaded, and don't tell anybody else. Thank you, Julia. You're welcome. She paused for a few long moments, her light mood growing darker before her next question. It's going to get worse, isn't it? They'll hit us from both ways and... We're almost out of ammunition. Yeah. McTavish didn't want to lie to her. It's gonna get worse. Keep your guns handy. Julia opened her mouth, but she didn't respond. Touching her hand against the door for a lingering moment, she heard her name called again back toward the tavern. I'll come see you tomorrow. I'll bring you some food. She walked away. McTavish could hear her footfalls. Sighing heavily, he slumped back into the chair at the table. He turned the cylinder on his revolver back and forth slowly, looking at the shiny six rounds that it filled it up. He thought back to the first time he'd held the gun. He had loaded it just like this and rotated the cylinder slowly, just like this, marveling how nice of a piece it was. He thought of Noah and Evelyn standing there in his Houston shop with all those trade goods, he chuckled at the thought of Evelyn standing there looking harmless and scared. He had really underestimated the girl. He thought of Noah. The kid looked so much like his father, but he had iron in his core, where his father had had nothing but cowardice. Then his thoughts shifted to Sanchez. McTavish had never had a child that lived past infancy, and Sanchez was the closest thing he had to family. He'd never get to see the boy grow up now, even if he came back from his little adventure with Noah and Evelyn. He was upset with himself that he'd not told Sanchez how much he cared for him before he left. He loved the boy, and he'd never once said it. Given the chance again, McTavish guessed he would go with Sanchez. When he'd arrived at the fort, 
McTavish had guessed that he'd only had a few more years left in him. But after a good couple months of eating well every day, and a more comfortable lifestyle, McTavish felt ten years younger. He'd put on close to twenty pounds, and his thin, hunched-over frame had changed dramatically. I was all in the past now, however. He was probably infected, and it was just a matter of time before he started showing symptoms. And once you do... McTavish's mind threw the question at him, but he already knew the answer. He snapped the cylinder into place with a jerk of his wrist, 